0: We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, And wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. I'm truly excited to have on the podcast today a very special person and friend. Amy has a powerful family story. She is full of information, is an incredible resource, and someone I know you'll enjoy hearing from today. I certainly don't want to give away too much in the intro, but know this, you will hear about her journey, her strength, and how you too can find hope when challenged by a family member with an addiction. Thank you for joining us now as we jump right into our conversation.
1: My name is Amy LaRue, and I have been married to my husband since 2005, and we have three children, ages 12, 9, and 4. And... My story, I just want to share with people, um, I thought it would never happen to our family. And I think many people would say the same thing, that this isn't going to happen to us, not our family. Um, I just remember in 2015, feeling just completely broken, um, lost, sad, frustrated, hopeless, um, angry, all these feelings. Because something was going on in my household, and I didn't know what it was. Um, I was a school teacher at that time, and I had a very challenging group of students that year, as some years you do, some years you don't. And I just remember trying to survive the year, but I also knew something was going on with my husband, and we didn't, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a lot of to do with anxiety and depression from his job. So I was just kind of on survival mode and trying to make it day by day and um, started felt like I was walking on eggshells. I didn't know what I was going to come home to. I didn't know if he was going to be able to eat dinner with us that night at the table, if he would already be in bed, what the night would look like as I pulled into the driveway. And I just remember, like I said, on survival mode, I started to become an investigator and started doing research on anxiety, depression. I also thought he may have had a brain tumor. So I started to research some of that because all these behaviors that I was seeing um, just didn't add up to the man I married. And we're high school sweethearts, so we had been dating since, you know, 1998. And here we are in 2015, and this is not the man that I had married and dated for so long. And things, you know, just weren't adding up. I couldn't figure it out, um, what was going on. And there's a snowy day, I'll never forget. It's actually my niece's birthday and all my students were getting checked out. And my poor child being a teacher's kid had to stay at school with me. And we came home that night and there he was again, just lounged out in his chair, not making sense. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I was trying to get the kids, my kids ready to go outside to play in the snow for a little bit. And the next thing I know, he's screaming from the living room for help. And from that night on, things just continued to spiral out of control, worse and worse and worse. Again, I, we got him to the doctor the next day, trying to figure out what's going on, got him on new anxiety meds and sleeping pills and all this stuff, just trying to survive. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't know what was going on. I feel like that's very normal. Um, and I'm a fixer. So I'm a teacher. I'm a mom. I'm a fixer. I can fix this, right? Um, but I couldn't. And about a month later or so was our daughter's third birthday, and I was just praying that he would be able to make it through the party. It was going to be at our house. I had done all the preparation, and I let him sleep in that day, and he had got up, and I thought, okay, he's going to be able to make it. About 15 minutes before the party was supposed to start, there he was, kicked off his shoes, laid back in his chair, not making sense, eyes closed, you know, just not participating. And so I made the tough decision and my sister-in-law and my father-in-law took him back to uh, my sister-in-law's house for the party. And um, we, you know, we went about my daughter. She's a little princess still to this day. And we had a princess birthday party, but inside I was holding it back because I had no clue what was going on. Was this how my life was going to be for the rest of the life, my life? Like, being sad disappointed angry not knowing what my husband's gonna do or not do is he gonna be present today or not today you know we went about the birthday party after the party i went out to dinner with my parents and my parents live in kansas so they took the kids back to their house for the week because it was spring break and when i came home you know i just felt like something was off still, obviously. And we went to bed and we were watching TV in bed and he wanted to go get a drink of water. And something in my gut said, Amy, get up and go check on him. And so I did. And I tell people I sprinted across my living room and that's where I finally had my answer that. It wasn't necessarily just anxiety and just depression. I saw him trying to pour um, vodka from a bottle into a cup. At that moment, it was just a weird moment thinking, okay, this is what's been going on. He's been drinking behind my back. He's been drunk. I'm not so crazy, but now what do I do with this? Is he an alcoholic? What is an alcoholic? What does that look like? What does that feel like? You know, I've been hiding all this stuff, all of his behaviors for so long from friends and family. My sister didn't even know what was going on. My parents kind of did, but not really like nobody knew what was going on, you know, through all of prior to that. The next day it was Sunday. I went to church. He wasn't there. Um, Lance Lang, the founder of Hope, is alive. Had just come and spoke at our church, and one of my dear friends had heard him, and she could tell something was off with me that Sunday. Um, And so I invited her and another friend from church over to our house, and I just opened up and started crying. And um, she was able to get us in contact with Lance for my husband, and so I was like, okay, we have our answer. We have we're, everything's going to be better, you know. So. My husband called Lance and had some suggestions about going to counseling, and I would say things got better probably for about a month or so. I still didn't know anything about alcoholism, addiction, anything, and, like, this doesn't happen to my family. This doesn't happen to the average family. This is only for, like, those under the bridge or those, you know, I had a different perspective of what addiction looked like. About a month after, things just started to spiral again, and I was just on survival mode because it was the end of the school year, so I was kind of ignoring it and just trying to survive, um, but still trying to fix it. So I started Googling, and then I tell people this all the time: I Google Googled out on how to fix my husband, how to help my alcoholic husband, and nothing was working. Obviously, I think, like I said, things just got worse and worse and worse. I remember going to a church meeting, walking in, and we were. The leaders of our Sunday school class going to this leadership meeting. And I knew he was drunk and I didn't know what to do at that moment. Like, do we walk into church? Do we not walk into church? What do we do? And after that meeting, like we left and I knew like what the verdict was. Like I knew he had been drinking, he was denying it. And I slept in another room that night. And the next day he admitted to it. But things still didn't get better he eventually went started doing some group counseling it got worse and worse and worse and I still was trying to fix 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 and I was thinking it was something I was doing as a wife if I would have done this if I could have done that if 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 things wouldn't be this way and then fast forward to June of 2015. I would escape to Kansas on the weekends. Honestly, like I didn't want to be at my house. Um, I just wanted to get away. And there's a weekend I was coming back and my mother-in-law calls me and it's like, she's in a panic asking what hospital we would go to because she thought my husband was dehydrated. I told her what hospital to go to. And I said, he's probably not dehydrated. (laughs) He's probably under the influence. And so sure enough, I called my friend and took my kids over to her house and I remember standing in her kitchen that night or that day and just crying and turned to her and said, Sarah, God is going to use this. I don't know how and I don't know when or what it will look like, but my prayer is that someday that I will be able to help one other spouse that's going through this, just one. You know, sure enough, um, you know, long story short, he was at the ER, his blood alcohol level was over three times the legal limit And that's when I had a shift too. And I realized like, you know, they talk about boundaries and all these things. And I didn't really know what that meant. But that night I knew he couldn't come home. I knew it wasn't safe for me or for the kids and ultimately for him either. You know, I told him he couldn't come home that night. I remember still at a loss. What am I supposed to do with all this? I had gotten a hold of Lance and... Talked to him and he had some resources at this point. Also, after that ER visit, my husband's counselor told him he needs to go to rehab. I'm like, rehab? What is that? You know, I would have never imagined my husband and people who know my husband, like went to school with him, knew him from church, would have never thought. And so I start to look. And I just couldn't believe, first of all, the cost and all of this. And he was going through a job change at the time and how we're going to survive financially. I'm a school teacher and with two kids at the time. and But when I called Lance for some resources, um, he was able to give me some resources, but then he flipped it on me. And he said, but I have stuff for you. And I was like, I'm not the one with the problem. I don't like, I'm looking for resources for my husband. He is drinking. He might be an alcoholic. I don't know really what that means, but he needs help, not me. And he's like, I just want you to try this class. And I was like, okay, I'm a rule follower. So okay. Which was called finding hope. And he was telling me it's full of other parents and spouses that love someone addicted to drugs or alcohol. I went long story short, my husband that week went to rehab and for the first time I could sleep after that and breathe. But I didn't know what that meant. He was only there gonna be there for 30 days. What does it look like after rehab? There's been so much hurt and damage to our family and for our trust. And I've heard it said before, you lose trust in bucketfuls and you gain it back in teaspoons. And so I lost all this trust in these big old bucketfuls and I hadn't gained any back at that point yet. He went to rehab and then I, when he was at rehab I went to my first Finding Hope meeting. And I honestly walked into that meeting in my best outfit, my hair and makeup, perfect, because I didn't want these people to realize my family had a problem, that my husband has an issue with drinking and all of this. And looking back at that, like, I can look back and think how crazy that was, but it wasn't crazy because it's that shame and guilt i was feeling as a wife and um, because like i said earlier i had all those if i would have done this if i was a better wife if 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 i would have had the kids behave better or you know all those things but what i found was when i walked into that meeting like these people get it i was finally surrounded by people who understand what it is like to love someone addicted to drugs or alcohol they didn't care what my hair looked like my outfit looked like you know, they just welcomed me with loving arms. And I could finally, for the first time, breathe like these people get it. You know, my parents didn't get it. You know, his parents on didn't get to the extent that I was going through as a spouse. You know, my best friends didn't get it. You know, no one understood it until you are surrounded by other people who understand the path you're walking. And I walked in, And I could breathe. Um, I still didn't know what I was doing and felt like, am I really need to be here? And I couldn't tell you anything that was said that night. But I could tell you, like, this is where I needed to be. And these people are going to be my new family. I saw people smiling, and it made me very angry because I was not smiling. But I knew I wanted what they had. And I knew I wanted to continue to find that happiness and that smile again that I had lost for so long. And so I just, you know, continue to go. And, you know, at this time, there's only one location. And eventually they started a group at my home church and, you know, I just continued to get plugged in. I tell people all the time, like, I can't tell you what was said or learned the first six months I was there, uh, but it goes back to, I finally felt like I wasn't alone anymore. And I started to take on that role of like, knowing like, this wasn't my fault, This is a disease. My husband has a brain disease, but there is hope. You know, my hope first lies in Jesus and there's hope for me to be happy again, hope for our family and hope for my husband. And so I just continued to get plugged in, stay connected, Um, not saying I wasn't resentful for going, getting angry some nights, thinking, why do I have to find childcare for my kids? But I knew it was important for myself and I knew I was starting to breathe again, and starting to get my life again. Because through my husband's um, addiction, I wasn't the friend I was supposed to be. I wasn't the daughter, the sister. I had taken on so many roles with my husband. I became my husband's nurse, my husband's therapist, my husband's doctor, my husband's secretary, all these things that I forgot to take care of myself in the process, and I forgot to take care of my other relationships. So through finding hope, I learned. How to take care of myself again and find, you know, God created me to be my husband's wife, not my husband's therapist, not my husband's doctor or secretary. And so through these meetings, and I learned more about addiction and the word enabling, what that looks like. I learned about codependency. People kept throwing these words at me, but I didn't understand what they meant until I really dug in and connected with other people. I started feeling God tugging at my heart. And so again, I was praying like, Lord, how are you going to use this? Just like that prayer I had in my friend's kitchen. Like, how are we going to use this? Am I supposed to go back to school, be a counselor? What is it gonna look like in 2019? So about four years later, Lance approached me, their ministry, Hope is a Lies has two different sides to their program. They have sober living homes, mentoring homes for those in recovery to go and have a second chance at life. But then we also have the finding hope side that I was involved in for the family members and friends of the addicts. As the sober living homes were growing and expanding, he saw the need for somebody to kind of pour in more into finding hope. And so I came on part-time and said, yes, and just continue to pray that God would continue to use our story to give that hope to somebody else, to reach out that hand to somebody going through that, to be that ear for that mom or that wife or that dad or that grandma um, or the sister. I mean, I get calls from everybody, friends, close friends, friends, the ministry just continued to grow and we continue to expand to new locations, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Wichita. And so then I kept feeling God like, okay, this ministry is growing. I also still like teaching, but I can't do both. <laughs> and so I just prayed. And in 2020, I took the leap of faith to take one year off of teaching came on full-time as the Finding Hope Coordinator, God, you know, he is just faithful. He will use our storms, and he will use our storms for his glory and purpose. When I was in the midst of the storm, I would still get angry and just pray. My best prayer I could, like, just use this, Lord. It has to be on his timing, is something I've, you know, definitely have learned through this. Um, so many times we want a quick fix when we love someone addicted to drugs or alcohol, but we have to remember his timing is perfect. We have to let God close the doors and let God open the doors. And that's what he's been doing through this whole process. Now we have over 37 meetings all the way from Pagosa Springs, Colorado, to Massachusetts, to Lincoln, Nebraska. And we've also have one in Zoom. We've got the book translated in in Spanish. So we have some Spanish meetings. And God is just continuing to use this ministry for those. And I tell people, it doesn't matter if your loved one is on the streets in their addiction, in prison in their addiction, five years sober in their recovery. Finding hope is for you. You know, I've been on this journey and my recovery and my is important still today. And I need to be on this journey to be able to continue to be that hand for that next person that comes through the door. We're also know um, with 2020, with the pandemic and um, the crisis of addictions gone up, overdoses have gone up. Everything has increased. I saw the need and God opened our eyes because we know addiction can end in prison and you know, recovery or unfortunately in death. So our ministries also expanded to those to support family members for those who have lost someone to addiction. And we have a support group now for them and just how God has just continued to use me for his glory and purpose and for this ministry. And I tell people all the time, I'm not a therapist. Uh, I just use my experience and my research, and that's the best I can give you. And sometimes I think that's what people need anyways. Um, and just excited to see how this journey will, you know, continue.
0: You spoke about really being that person that hid behaviors from everybody you knew, from family members, from the people. I mean, here you were, a family that attended church on a regular basis, that was living the typical, the the very normal life. You were an educator. He was in the professional world. And you were able to hide all of those things that were kind of some triggers that you were like, okay, something's not right here. But I'm wondering if you can, if looking back, you see something maybe for other families to be watching out for that would maybe lead into some of that, that you would say, okay, here's what you ought to watch for as a family member and how you coped trying to hide all of those things.
1: Some of the signs that I could tell something was not right. First of all, he just wasn't being involved in our kids' lives like he used to be. I was the one that ended up doing baths every night. I was the one reading the bedtime stories to our kids, tucking them in every night. We did a Bible story every night. I was the one having to read it. There were signs he would read it every once in a while. And when I, I've talked about how I thought he may have had a brain tumor is because when he was reading it, he was slurring his words and reading it really slow. And I thought it was odd. And so I was like, something's not going on right he was sleeping a lot. Like he would be checked out. He would be kicked off his shoes. Um, There was one time I came in and there's water, just weird water all over our living room floor. And we have no clue how it got there. Um, He was very emotional too. And um, just, you could tell that he didn't feel worthy. He didn't feel worth. Um, He felt worthless too. And So I just continue to comfort him. We love you. You know, all those things. He was missing work. He, we sometimes, I couldn't get a hold of him. And, you know, there's a time, I'll be honest, I would watch our credit card transactions. And some of those transactions on the credit cards didn't look right. Um, I noticed money missing from like our kids piggy banks and from our chain, our change, you know, a lot of people have a change holder. I noticed money missing from that. Um, And just, you know, I never could smell it really. um, Because his choice was vodka and with vodka, you really can't smell it. But when I started thinking things might be something was off, I started to sniff. There was a week. Um, leading up to my daughter's birthday party that I started to notice I was taking some raw chicken, you know he cut off the fat, taking it out to um, the dumpster. And I started to see some bottles. I saw some beer bottles and I found a vodka bottle. But our neighbors at the time weren't you know the best neighbors um, that you could so I just put it up to that. But then I started thinking, okay, he he's sleeping a lot. He's slurring his words. We never did like the party scene in college or never really were involved in I've never felt comfortable around that. And I remember texting his dad and saying like, hey, do you think he's drinking? Because at that time, his dad was kind of helping him with his jobs too, riding around with my husband. And um, he said, well, I've seen some of these bottles at job sites. I'm sure your husband is just picking up stuff from the job sites. So there's things like that. In our Finding Hope book, um, it lists things that if you think there's a problem, you start to find things, you know, whether it's those bottles like I was finding, you start to see things are not right. They might go missing MIA for a while. You can't get a hold of them. Yes, he had a job, I had a job, but some of the things just weren't adding up. Like he wasn't responding to text messages or answering his calls like he used to, or returning a call after, you know, he was done with a client. Looking at their eyes, you know, I could look at my husband's, you know, skin tone even, and you could tell like he just didn't feel well and something just doesn't look right is another sign. Maybe it doesn't smell right, you know? Sometimes you can smell the alcohol, sometimes you can smell the drugs on them, or you might find the drug, you know, pills or something in their pocket and wondering where they come from. They might start to isolate, that's part of it. And I started to isolate myself But so do addicts as well. They start to isolate. He didn't want to go hang out with buddies at church. He didn't want to go do this or that, that he normally, he's a very outgoing person and he just didn't want to do that. He's very funny and he wasn't, he just wasn't himself. And I think I mentioned money, money goes missing or just doesn't seem right. Sometimes stealing, they'll steal things to sell or if you confront them on these things, 99.9% they're going to lie about it. So you've just got to realize, okay, I'm not crazy because you're going to make feel like you're crazy. Another sign is emotional swings. You know, there'd be times when he'd be super, super happy, like to the point where crazy happy to embed depressed. And that's another sign of someone might have an addiction like I said, I would hide these things. Facebook, social media can be wonderful, but it can be also awful. Because if you would have gone onto my social media that year, you would have thought this is a perfect family. No one would have known. And sometimes I would do that for myself. I would post it believing, okay, we're, we're still a happy family. You know, we're high school sweethearts. I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher of the year. I, you know, we have these two beautiful kids, you know, he has a job, you know, he's has his own business at this time. And, you know, like, but really, and then I would look at pictures of other families and wish I had what they have, but we have to remember they might be hiding behind something as well. And so social media is a great way to hide behind what's really going on, but also that jealousy and that envy of, you know, but we don't know really what's going on behind those pictures and those emotions. Church. I would make, if he wasn't at church. I'd make up excuses for him where he was. He wasn't feeling well, or work wise. I would sometimes check his emails, making sure they're getting responded, and tell him the next morning, "Hey, don't forget this person emailed you. What you know, bobble, you know, tried to take care of the issue." And um, and I would just take care of everything. I would be in contact with his family. I would be. In, I was doing everything just to hide it just to, you know, like I said, walking on eggshells and to keep the peace. He wasn't eating all the time either. That's another sign, you know, I'd make dinner and then I wasn't eating. That's one of my emotions. Like when I get stressed and over with my anxiety and stuff, I don't eat. So I wasn't being healthy. So I wasn't a healthy version from our kids either at that time.
0: I'm wondering if you might be able to discuss um, or if you want or can share a little bit of the impact it had on your family as a whole, even maybe your, your kids, um, did your kids understand it? Did they recognize it? Did they know something was going on? You know, um, when, when there's an addiction, it really impacts the family as a whole and not just maybe the adults in the family, but kind of incorporating the, the children into this.
1: So yes, like through my husband's addiction, you know, a lot of times we think it's just that one person. What I've come to learn through addiction is that one person is a negative ripple effect for the whole family system. And it starts and it slowly builds its way and it impacts me as a spouse. Um, I think I've talked about that quite a bit of, you know, just trying to take care of everything, taking it all on, being that superhero and um, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to take care of it. And then at this time, our kids were three and almost six, and my three-year-old, she didn't really know what was going on at the time, and, um, you know, it was normal for her that I was checking her in, like, she didn't see anything different at that time. My six-year-old, though, like, there were some times where she would walk in, and she would kind of be questioning what was going on. Um, there's one time that my husband had to go outside and get sick and he got sick on part of her Elsa dress and stuff. And so it really was um, when he went down to rehab, you know, we just talked about how daddy's been sick and because it is a disease, he needs to get healthy and well today, you know, our daughters are older and they know about it. Like we definitely are very open with them about it because it, they could have the gene to, to have this addiction as well. And so we are very open about it. And my sick, my older daughter does talk about some of this stuff still. And my three-year-old, when she was three, didn't know much. Um, but it's really interesting how it, each person, it really brings out that fight-flight syndrome. Like, how are we going to respond? And I talk all the time, we need to respond and not react. And um, So like, how do we react to crisis modes? And The night my husband was in the ER, my in-laws took him. And when the doctor came in and just kind of looked at my husband, are you going to tell them or am I? And I thought my husband was denying drinking that night. He said, well, your blood alcohol level is over three times the legal limit. My husband still was denying it. He was like, no, it's not. And you know, it's a blood test. It doesn't lie. Like that is where you can see at that moment, I went into just sadness, hopelessness, and just start crying and bawling. Cause I didn't know what this meant. What is it gonna look like in the future? My father-in-law, you could just see it on his face. The like disappointment, here's my son. Like what is going on? Almost like going back to, was it something he did as a father? You know, we start to blame ourselves. Then my mother-in-law just starts screaming at him. and yelling and you know it's just we all react different and we're all impacted my father-in-law's health that year was the worst health he had a seizure he had to have open heart surgery because we take on that stress and our bodies can feel it i my immune system was down that year too even though i had been a teacher for 10 years like i had gotten strep two times ta- all these sicknesses i never really had through teaching that my body should be immune to by that point, I w- I was getting sick um, physically and mentally. My husband's sister, you know, they talk about the lost sheep or the lost goat, you know, and that's how she was, you know, it's like all of your focus goes on to the addict and trying to fix it. And, you know, and we all take on these different personalities trying to fix it and we lose who we are. And that's where I tell people, you know, it can start with that one, the addict with that negative and the whole storm starts to erupt. But what would happen if that one person in that system stops that eruption, and they start getting healthy and well, they start learning the tools. They understand it's important to have boundaries and to keep those firm boundaries, Uh, to stop enabling, to stop giving that money all the time, to stop, you know, when we have that one person that stops the storm, it still doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel comfortable for the whole system, but something happens. The storm slowly, that part of the storm stops. And then the more the family system gets healthy and well, it gives the opportunity for addicts to get healthy and well because they don't have anybody feeding into the storm anymore. And there's no cushion for them to fall on. We take away their cushion and they have to fall hard. And people ask, what does rock bottom look like? What, What does an intervention look like? And honestly, an intervention looks like we stop enabling. We step out of that codependency cycle thinking we can fix it all. And we put up those boundaries that don't feel comfortable, but that are necessary.
0: So did your in-laws, did they help in that way? Did they Did they come up with their own boundaries? And were, able, were they able to assist in that, some of that? I tell people, you don't know what you don't know.
1: And if you're listening, I want you to know it's okay. You don't know what you don't know. And we didn't know what we were doing. And we were just on survival mode. And that's why I was so grateful for finding hope in a support group for myself and for my family members. My in-laws got involved in finding hope as well. So they started to gain the tools and the knowledge and the education that we all need to help the family system. Sometimes we're not all on the same page. My boundaries might look different than somebody else's boundaries, but that's my boundary. I have the boundary if my husband would come home and drink again, he's not allowed to stay at our house. And if he won't leave, I will leave with the kids. And that's just a boundary I have in place now. Prior to all this, I had no clue what that would look like if I would even be strong enough to do it. But I have my community at Finding Hope with other people who can hold, give me the strength to be able to follow through with that. Um, And so when we went to rehab, when my husband went to rehab and we got to go to family weekend and we did, we sat down with a counselor and talked about our boundaries, what that looks like, what that feels like for all of us. And so that it was nice for all of us to be on the same page. And sometimes it doesn't happen right away like that, but you've just got to stay strong. And that's why I want to encourage, like, just keep going. Cause they'll see a change in you and they'll want that change. The other family members will as well.
0: That's, that's impactful as well, that it, it truly is. It just continues that ripple effect from one addiction. Talk about maybe some of the, the triggers that would push somebody down an addiction, a road of addiction. Of course, you talked about um, the crisis of COVID right now. You know, so many families are, are isolating and not getting out. And so you have this and where do we turn? So I'm wondering if, is, is there something you, you as a family identify as a trigger? And then maybe some of the triggers that identified in the community.
1: So addiction is a brain disease, first of all, and some people still think it's a choice. It. I'm at the stance that it's a brain disease. And so I can go through a stressful situation, um, the pandemic, um, a job loss maybe, or losing a family member. And... Yes, it's stressful. And, you know, I have my own things. I might go to go eat more chocolate. Or like I said, when I go through those, I don't eat. And so I get skinny, I lose weight. And that's how I cope with it. When someone has brain disease of addiction, and what their brain tells them is, I need something to be able to shut the world off. I know that that last time I drank, I was able to numb out the, the rest of the time. And my husband, that was his, he would drink to be able to shut off and not have to think anymore and to be able to sleep. You know, he was dealing with, he did have anxiety and depression. And so he would drink to be able to shut that off. A lot of times addictions start back in that high school or middle school, they get injured on the football field or in soccer. They have that surgery. They take that pill for the first time and their brain tells them this feels good. You like this. This is what you need to survive. And so the next time they're in a crisis mode, their brain t- triggers them. Go back, you know what works. You don't need, you just go there. It'll, you'll be able to shut this off quicker if you go back to this drug of choice. You know, some people's drug of choice or pills, some are alcohol, and fentanyl is a big one right now on the streets. That's very scary. And so it's just what, you know, some people will say, I don't discriminate. Honestly, their levels will continue to go up like their tolerance. So what we used to be able to shut my husband's down with a couple beers, finally turned to needing the vodka and um, to be able to shut off. And then more vodka just to build up because their body builds up that tolerance. Any major, you know, PTSD, military. We've had a speaker talk that's been in over in Afghanistan in the war. And he will, he's, he's in recovery and he will say, the war didn't make me an addict. Uh, that's how I coped. And that's what my brain said that my buddy over here was in the exact same with me the whole time. He doesn't have this disease.
0: When, when you talk about the resource that you now work for, which is Hope is Alive, this is all family engagement. Is that right? And it started in Oklahoma. I mean, did Lance Lang start this in Oklahoma? And it spread, it sounds like almost across the country at this point. And then is it all family-based type stuff with y'all bringing in therapists and counselors and those type of things? Why don't you share a little bit about that?
1: So Hope is Alive Ministries, our mission is radically changing the lives of drug addicts, alcoholics, and those who love them. We see it as a family disease and the whole family needs support. At What Started, Lance Lang is a drug addict in recovery right now. He has 10 years, he celebrated 10 years sober in April of 2021, which is so fun. And he just felt God calling him to use his story he saw the need for more faith-based sober living homes and he saw the need for that and so he started hope is alive with one hope you know him and a few guys moved into this house and then god just continued to bless him in the ministry and the need and so we just continued to grow in homes for those in recovery, we say the first stops detox, second stops rehab, and the you know, then sober living to ha- see the most success, to live a full life of recovery. What happened was he, Lance likes to go and we speak at churches to be vulnerable, to realize I'm a preacher's kid and drugs took over my life. And, you know, we know in churches that we all are hiding something and that being able to share that and realize you're not alone in this. And so he was speaking at a church and a lady came up. She had just lost her son to an overdose about a year prior and said, what about the families? She said, I've been to some support groups, but they weren't what I needed. God had been pulling on Lance's heartstrings and hers. And that's how the other side of the ministry of hope is alive. The finding hope, the support groups for the family members started was there's a need. And so God led led Lance and this lady to come together to realize that we needed something here in Oklahoma City. It started in Oklahoma City, both the sober living homes as well as Finding Hope. And then as people find out more and more about it, and you know, they realize, I want this here, I want it now, you know. And so that's just kind of how we just continuing to pray for where God will take us, you know, to the next city, the next state, um, for both the homes as well as the Finding Hope meetings. And the support group meetings, you know, sometimes i get, well, my son or daughter isn't in one of the Hope is Life homes. And we're like, no, like this is a lot of the times. And um, one of my favorite stories is a family member started coming to Finding Hope. Her daughter was in and out of jail 10 times. Her mom and stepdad started coming to Finding Hope, you know, probably for about four years. You know, they were very faithful in coming. Their daughter was in and out of addiction, in and out of jail there is a, t- a period where the mom hadn't heard from her daughter she just kept coming getting this drink from the members of the meeting and then one day she got a phone call from her daughter and her daughter was in prison and her daughter's like i need something different when i get out and her daughter ultimately and her mom said had that boundary before her mom wasn't strong enough before finding hope her mom would let her come home and all of that but she's like well you can't come home she goes no i want to go to hope is alive So she went basically from prison, from when she got released from prison, straight to H Hope is Alive Home, started learning those tools, moved up and opened the home up in Wichita for women and graduated. And so, and she's on staff with us now and just shows like, and her parents still come to Finding Hope, you know, even though their daughter's doing so well, you know, it's one of those, like, we all need in recovery, we all need the supports. Um, We've talked about triggers we still get triggers. You know, sometimes if I see my husband's truck home before I get home, I get a trigger thinking, oh no, why is he home before I am today? You know, because in his addiction, he would always be home before I would, and his truck would always be in the driveway. And so we still get those triggers, whether they're two months over, two years, or 20 years, we're always going to need that support from one another. And to give that hope to that next person that walks in. So that's just One of those stories, family restoration, and where our mission of hope is alive, restoring the life of the addict as well as the family, and they're together, and it's just it's just amazing to see. And that's just one of many where the family members started coming. There's another staff member up in Wichita, also his dad started coming and wouldn't even talk at
0: Finding Hope for months. Pretty incredible. So truly, the addict does not have to be an involved or a participant in the homes or involved in order for the family member to be involved.
1: Correct. So, I mean, there's two, I, you know, there's two sides to our ministries. Our prayer is that, you know, when the family members get healthy and well, that, that will open the door for their loved one to move into one of our homes someday. That's our prayer. And it is so neat to see how God has continued to do that. So yes, finding hope is for anyone that loves somebody that is in addiction, or been in addiction, that loves someone addicted to drugs, or alcohol, or, I mean, we even have some that come that their loved one's a sex addict, and, you know, we still have that support, and that love um, for them
0: in there. It's a powerful ministry, clearly. How are you guys doing now as a family? Um, Obviously, you're on here sharing, it's part of your testimony, it's part of what you do in in life now, for your own, um, your own job, and so how he, so clearly he's given you permission to be able to share this piece of your family and the addiction piece. How are y'all doing now? You know, I say
1: that our marriage is stronger now than it was prior to the addiction. And I really, first of all, give it to God and for him restoring that. But also the fact that my husband is on his own path of recovery and his road, and I'm on my own road. And we don't (laughs) crossroads. I don't try to go in his and tell him what to do. And he doesn't go in mine and tell me what to do. We are truly on our own path to recovery mentally, getting our health and wellness taken care of. It makes us a stronger unit, makes us a stronger couple, makes us a stronger parent and a stronger family. I'll never forget early on in his addiction when I started going to support groups someone said it was a blessing. And I just wanted to slap them. Like literally, I was like, this, isn't, this does not feel like a blessing to me. But today I can say it really is. I would have never dreamed I'd be on here doing a podcast with you or anybody. From the youngest age, I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. And I was doing that. And I was a successful kindergarten teacher. I was a mentor teacher. I was teacher of the year, all these things. But God had a different plan and a different purpose for my life. At that time in my life, yes, that was my plan and purpose, but God has called me to do another path now. And, you know, I have to be obedient to that as well. So tell
0: me a little bit about the retreat that you guys are putting on. Is it for the families? Is it for how, how is that going to look and what is that going to do for, um, for the families? So
1: this year, I'm excited. We're about to kick off our second, and I'm going to say annual retreat. Um, We had a retreat last year in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at Post Oak Lodge and retreat. Um, And it was kind of just, you know, I just felt like God was telling me to do this. So I did it. And we did it through COVID. And the response was incredible. And so we're about to do our second one, March 25th through the 27th. Also at Post Oak Lodge and Retreat. This retreat is truly for anyone who loves someone addicted to drugs or alcohol, whether they're in recovery or not. This weekend has been prayed about more times than you probably could think of, as well as very purposeful. And um, we want this to be a time where you can check out. We, you know, I even tell people turn off your phones. People know how to call 911 in a crisis. Just a time to truly check out for others to love on you, for you to retreat, for you to find peace for a weekend, for you to gain tools and friendships that will last forever. Our goal is 75 people in attendance. Last year, we had 45. We have speakers, a speaker coming from Texas, a speaker coming from Wichita, as well as myself as one of the keynote speakers this weekend. There's opportunities for breakout sessions where you'll get a chance to Look at different topics see where you want to go um, from how to survive a relapse with your loved one for captivating your thoughts and to codependency to how to keep your marriage strong when your child's in their addiction some of our breakout sessions that will have happen we also have a time where it's just completely self-care we'll have chair massages available fishing hiking and all sorts of stuff, but this is a time to invest back into yourself. I say all the time, you would invest a little bit into your loved one getting, going to rehab or whatever. This is your time to invest in yourself, for you to kick back, let us love on you and to connect. We already have, whether you're in finding hope and attending a meeting, it's open to anyone. I've already had three people sign up who aren't actually involved in a meeting yet but they want to learn about more about finding hope and make those connections. And so we also, I'm looking for sponsors for the event as that can come out on Friday evening as a resource fair for those who are attending because we know when our loved ones are ready for help, we need to be ready. And so it's nice to know what resources are available from different detoxes to different family services to rehabs, to sober livings, to counseling centers. And so we're looking for sponsors to come help this event more successful and also be a part of this resource fair for family members as well. And I'm just pumped and excited. We have someone playing, some, we got some worship music, and um, guy coming down, one of our residents coming down from Kansas City. We're going to have a bonfire. Um, it's just going to be a great time. So I'm super pumped. <laughs>
0: Oh, I love that. So it tr- it truly is for the family of the addict um, to be a part of. This, so this is
1: just for the family members. You know, I had people last year that signed up at the last minute to attend. And they were my first ones to sign up this year to attend the retreat. The last weekend in March, it's easy to remember. Um, The place we have it at is beautiful. It's, yes, it says Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's right outside Tulsa. And so you don't even feel like you're in the city. And they love on us their food. That's one of the biggest things. was incredible. We feed you well. A weekend for you. You know, you deserve to invest in yourself. We give, give, give it's time to put on our own oxygen mask first. And we talk about that at Fighting Hope. We have to put on our own oxygen mask first, take care of us, take care of our self care, get healthy and well. And again, it goes back to that motto to learn you're not alone in this, you know?
0: How much is it for someone to go and attend this?
1: So for an individual, it's 275. And then for a couple is 425. And that covers everything from your room so, two nights room stay to all your meals, to snacks, to everything is covered shirts. And so, really, all you have to do is show up. And that's all we need. Show up as you are, is kind of what we're saying. Come as you are. You know, I don't care if you're in your pajama pants, your yoga pants, your jeans. We just want you to come.
0: That sounds like a great, a great experience. You have given us solid information and, and just a wonderful testimony. If someone wanted to reach out to you personally after hearing this podcast and they're like, I, I need to meet her, I, I need to know her, I want to touch base with her, how would they do that?
1: They can, to touch base with me, they can email me at amy, A-M-Y, at hopeisalive.net, That's my work email. You can also learn more about finding hope at findinghope.today. And we have a list of all our meetings and resources um, on that page as well.
0: Well, Amy, I just cannot thank you enough for sharing your testimony and the vision and um, where God has led you up to this point to be able to really touch the lives of others. And um, I thank you for being a a part of this podcast. It's called We Saved You a Seat. And I know that clearly Hope is a Life Ministries has saved a seat for a lot of people out there. And I really appreciate you saving a seat for me to learn more from you and your family and um, how we can maybe reach and touch the lives of others. So thank you for being here.
1: And can I say one more thing? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Our motto is, and so if you're out there listening, I want you to know, if you're going through this, if you're in the midst of the storm, I want the only three things I want you to leave with today is you're not alone in this. And I don't want you to be alone in this. It's not your fault. Don't let the enemy tell you that. And there
0: is hope. Thank you again. Thank you for being here. And we really appreciate you sharing your heart and your vision. So thank you.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at OklahomaFamilyNetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.